Welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, cr film critic and creator and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with those movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors, the cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, sound mixers, sound editors, sound designers, the VFX magicians, um, composers, authors, you name it. And did I say those, those people, those actor people uh, that we see on screen? You name it, we talk to them all. And are you ready? Tomorrow morning, Academy Award nominations are announced, five, either 5 or 5.30 a.m. We'll see uh, if it's a Barbie Heimer Oscars this year. I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. In all honesty, I am not that bowled over by any of the front runners that everyone's been talking about uh, since the summer with Oppenheimer and Barbie. Um, just not bowled over. There are certain elements in each film that I dearly love and that are exemplary, but nothing really screams sweep to me it's a piece here and a piece there so I'm curious to see what happens uh tomorrow morning and maybe we'll talk about that on next week's show but today we've got joining us fresh off the world premiere at slam dance uh of his latest film bliss Joe Maggio is joining us at the midpoint of the show can't wait to talk to Joe. It's been many a year since we have spoken. Since one of his very early films, Bitter Feast, which I still. It's deliciously decadent. Um, working with Larry Fessenden. And of course, Larry is executive producer on Bliss as well. So, very excited. We'll talk more about Bliss when Joe joins us. And I can't wait to hear how the Slam Dance audience liked the film. But first... You've got my exclusive interview with director Gabriella Cowperthwaite. Gabriella, you may know her most famous work, the documentary Blackfish, uh, from 20, 2013 or so when it came out. Uh, also her film, Our Friend, uh, and one of my favorites uh, of Gabriella's, her narrative film, Megan Levy, uh, about a female soldier deployed in the Middle East, a service and a service dog. Uh, you've heard, I've interviewed Gabriella several times. Uh, our interview for Megan Levy, you actually heard here on Behind the Lens. But now we're talking her latest film, ISS. I love this film. She has done an amazing job telling this story script is by Nick Shafir uh, and in a nutshell it takes place on the ISS this is a narrative let me stress that this is a narrative however what is posited in this story is something that really could happen on the International Space Station. So we have a dot, and the way Gabriella, she's so adept at documentaries and narratives, she has really blended 
uh, a documentary sensibility in terms of the production elements, but makes it very cinematic and brings in great performances from Ariana DeBose, Chris Messina, John Gallagher Jr., Pilo Asbeck, Costa Ronan, and Masha Meshkova as uh, three astronauts from NASA and three cosmonauts that are all up on the ISS. And this is truly, it is a craftsman's dream watching this film. You've got impeccable production design from Jeff Wallace. Uh, Robbie McKeithen does costume design. Cinematographer Nick Remy Matthews. Wow. Um, claustrophobic, small contained areas. And he just knocks it out of the park with his lighting and lensing. A wonderful score by Anne Nicotin, who you know her scoring from the Idris Elba series, uh, Hijack. And, of course, the editing, impeccable. Richard Mettler and Colin Patton. Colin has done Pitch Perfect 3, Our Brand is Crisis, the George Clooney, Sandra Bullock movie, 80 for Brady, um, Prince Avalanche, which was one of his first films going back uh, to with um, a little indie with David Gordon Green that starred none other than Paul Rudd. Uh, and then Richard Mettler, who most recently has done Jacob's Ladder. Really great craftsmanship on this film. But the thrill of this is the thematics of trust, humanity, and human nature. The ISS itself becomes a character, and we really dive into a character study of each of these astronauts um, as they get separate instructions from the Earth after a worldwide conflict has, bro has broken out, which they can see from the ISS, the explosions uh, in different countries and different cities. And they each, each team, whereas you're supposed to be working cohesively, when, when politics comes into play, uh, working cohesively kind of goes out the window, as I think we all see here on Earth. But to see it play out in a hypothetical situation on the ISS is something else. Um, it is high stakes. It is a nail-biting thriller. It is fantastic. So it's, it's a 33-minute interview. We're going to cut it off a little early when, so when Joe calls in. But then we're going to pick up the last couple minutes at the end of the show. And Pam's nodding her head, yes. Yes, we are. And then this will be up on the website, BehindTheLensOnline.net, late tonight. So... Take a listen to my exclusive interview with director Gabriella Cowperthwaite talking about uh, the fantastic thriller, ISS. Hello, how are you? Hello, Gabriella. It is so good to chat with you again. Last time we talked was Megan Levy. Oh my gosh, was it really back then? Yep. Wow, Debbie, so 2017 or something. I think 15, 16, something like that. And we had spoken about Blackfish, you know, more than a decade ago. Another film I'm going to revisit many, many, many times, I assure you, is ISS. You blew me away with this one. Wow. 
I am an admitted space geek from small on, from since I was about four or five years old. And I know Buzz Aldrin. I've known Buzz for a number of years. So I've always paid I've always paid attention to the space program. With, and with this one, a lot of people don't think about it with the ISS, but because it is a multinational collaborative and partnership, we have had everybody thinks everything's hunky dory. Well, everything yeah. has not been hunky dory up on the space station. And I have often thought. What happens? What happens on the space station with the geopolitical tensions and explosions here on Earth? And we have seen that play out, even going back. I mean, Russia was only going to be involved originally until, what, 2024 or 2022. They then extended to 2024. Now they're extended to 2028. But it's very tenuous. Because as recently as 2021, they threatened to withdraw from the partnership due to sanctions on, Rus on Russia. In February of 2022, Dmitry Rogozin, the head of the Russian Space Agency, with the Ukraine war, threatened to end cooperation immediately. We need Russia for the supply missions. We need Russia to help keep the ISS in, orb in low orbit without crashing to the Earth. And we need Russia for transporting astronauts back and forth. Exactly right. And I think this was really glossed over. Nobody really realized the catastrophic nature of what was going to happen up there if space could not be separated from politics and humanity could not be separated from politics. So to yep. see this play out in Nick's script, wow, wow, wow. Wow, wow. It is incredible that you have such in-depth knowledge about this, for, for one. I think it's, um, it's, I did not have that knowledge. I did not know very much about the space station. I didn't know how fast it was moving. I didn't know kind of what it was like, you know, when you go up there just from purely a physical perspective, like our organs don't do well in space. Like we're not meant to be up there, right? For, especially for, for extended periods of time. So it's sort of like all of that was new to me. And then, yes. And so it's like, here are these people, right? It's a pressure cooker, different countries. Oftentimes the countries are adversarial, adversarial with one another. And then they're sort of expected to Play nice, which they do. And so, like, historically, they are scientists first. They leave that kind of, you know, um, adversarial relationship at the door because they're essentially in charge of each other's safety. Mm -hmm. And they were, there's going to be someone on board who's going to save your life, who's going to, like, you know, fix the duct, right? Um, fix the satellite, um, take care, you know, be, be a doctor if something's going on. Um, there's just like every single person is so clutched to that mission that like you're just going to be leaning on each other constantly. So it's sort of like it's sort of like what almost like what life could be, you know, and like maybe this aspirational version of like how we could behave with one another. And um, and, you know, if you notice, obviously, which you did in the movie, it's all it's all good until they're told it's not. 
Yep. Right. Until they're told like that is not your friend. And why is that person not your friend? Because we're telling you that person. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, it's, it's just this sort of in, this, the insidiousness of it always has to do with, with, you know, nationalism and, and geopolitics and, you know, and my, me winning. And the only way I win is if you lose. Mm -hmm. Right. And then that's like, that's just the kind of world we're living in. So um, it's, it's, terrifying and it's amazing that you all the way back then I guess sort of saw this you know, as, as the pressure cooker that it could be. Well and I think part of that I owe to Buzz because we've had conversations in the past and I've asked him about contingency plans you got three guys in an Apollo capsule up there what happens yep. not everything is Apollo 13 where miracles can happen and you can come back home but what happens if you, even NASA astronauts, if they turn on each other, what are the contingencies? And there are contingencies, none of which are good. Yeah. And yeah. on something like this, like the ISS, it's a hotbed. I mean, the only country that is not allowed to send any astronauts or participate is China. Yeah. Every other country is allowed to enter into the part the ISS partnership, but not China. Hmm. But yeah. to see this in this microcosm, in this claustrophobic vehicle, for lack of a better term, is just fascinating. And the way you have structured this, Gabriella, you rely very heavily on your production designer, Jeff Wallace's design of the ISS is incredible. We feel the claustrophobia. I know. It is so cool. And that was just interestingly, one of the first things that I did was show um, Mickey Liddell and Pete Shalomon, who kind of, you know, Pete gave me this script. We've worked together before on Megan Levy. And um, Pete fell in love with the script off the blacklist. And so when I came in to talk about me doing it, um, I brought in I brought in images of, of the ISS, mm -hmm. very specific ones, right? I wanted this messiness and this kind of like just human feel to it with like layers upon layers because, you know, these layers, as you understand, um, are just decades, right, of just of stuff that's mm -hmm. been brought up by different, you know, nationalities and different people and, and it's just kind of been floating in zero gravity and then stuck on a wall. So if you lose something, right? and it's just out there floating or whatever, eventually it's going to kind of like embed itself in the wall. Well, after decades of people living there, there's tons of that stuff. So it's kind of a mess. And like, I love that. There was something about it that was so not, was so cool and not futuristic and kind of perfected. Like a lot of, I think, some of these space movies can feel very yeah. perfect. And like, that's kind of what we wish the future looked like, you know? Whereas like, this is really what it does look like. And so I brought that in and said, Jeff, I know this is a lot, right? There's a lot of props here, but this is what I want. And he just delivered. I mean, it was so cool. We built the pods. They built the pods, essentially, a, a, you know, a number of pods. I think there were six or something um, on a stage in North Carolina. And so we had different pods to move into, and then all the roof, you know, all the ceilings could fly off of them so we could tether people in zero gravity, all this stuff. But... But essentially, he really kind of 
you know, bought what I was selling in terms of like that look and um and just knocked it knocked it out of the park. I still I still it's still one of my favorite parts of the movie. And it's not just the lived in look because when we first meet the crew of the ISS, it's very much like a fraternity house. And yeah. you see the mess everywhere. Right. You also see them, it's like they got their little clicks happening and things like that. You get this frat house camaraderie. Right. But that changes very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. While we have that vibe, beyond that is the technicality, the high tech aspect of the space station, right down to the oscilloscopes to all the you know, all of the electronics. So it's a perfect blend that you and Jeff have come up with from a visual standpoint. And that informs the entire storyline and the human responses as to how do I save myself or how do I save someone else or how do I get the hell out of here? That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, it gets, it's, you're in the, you're in this zone, right? Of just, you know, you're up there. You can't leave. And like that, to me, there's just so many things about the ISS that are just, that just haunt me. And when I was, the more I read about, it, the more I researched, the more haunting it became. It didn't. It yeah. of course became more exciting, um, but it it became like I can't I can't believe that you could be up there and and make the decision that it's that it's not for you. And not be able to turn around, you know, and have some sort of evacuate evacuation plan. Like it requires the Soyuz, it requires, um, you know, ground support and ground control helping the whole time. Yeah. You need multiple people on the Soyuz. Usually there's three. I have two. You know, playing a little bit with reality there. Um, you like, and you know, you've got to just decompress and do all the stuff before you even leave the space station. All of it, every single step is so meticulous and so incredibly dangerous. And um, and you need cooperation, right? You need people to constantly help you until like, you don't have that up there, you know? And um, you lose faith and, and trust in other people. Um, you're totally at a loss. You're completely on your own. Well, so, and, um, and this is a testament yeah. to your actors and to your editors. Richard and Colin, and I have loved Colin's work since he did Prince Avalanche years ago, and Richard's work on Jacob's Ladder. But it's their editing and the work of your cast that really build the tension and the panic. Because as you watch this, you're feeling panic because we don't know who to trust. You do a great job with ambiguity. Who can you trust? You've got John Gallagher Jr.'s character, Christian Campbell. Come on, nice little clean-cut kid from the United States. Of course we can yes. trust him. Of course you can trust him. Chris Messina. Him. Yeah, Chris Messina as Commander Gordon with his mustache and all. He looks a little shifty maybe, but... Right, okay. right. Ariana as a science officer, Kira Foster... She's just totally like, my mice, my mice, because she's got her yeah. science experiment. Then we have our Russians. You've got Pilu, who I adore. Everything Pilu has ever done, I love him in. Here is no different. 
But right away, we're questioning him. And then Costa Ronin does an amazing job as Commander Pulov from the Russian Space Agency. And then we get Masha Mashkova as Veronica in there, who is really, she's the umbilical cord between Russia and the United States because of her and Gordon. That's right, exactly it. You give us the shifting dynamic and perspectives of each of these people. The editing is so rapier, Gabriella. How challenging was it to build the tension, to keep us moving and keep questioning the mindset, the loyalty and the humanity of each of these people? Because it is nonstop. That you're that you're picking up on all of it, and and that you understand just the the uniqueness of each of these characters and, their, and the actors and their background. Um, I think you know, like the script that was like this great plot, you know, like that I couldn't imagine. I mean, just the building blocks of the the Nick Shaper's script, right? It just is this all there. This like very cool, like can't believe this wasn't made before kind of story, and so that was very exciting. And then I think the tension, you know, like it, it like is this is this kind of fine line to walk in like I want to do like this kind of like this thriller, like feel like it should feel like a thriller. You mm-hmm. should not know who to trust, but like sometimes I you know, at, at different times during the film I also want you to see the cracks in their character. So you have like a nuanced character, right? And so you sort of see someone on their, you know, you see them and you're looking at them as they're making a controversial decision. And so it's sort of like you're feeling them and you're seeing what they're up against. And that's kind of like a drama, right? And then the other part is this thriller, right? Where you, you want to hide some of the stuff and you want to be able to like dole out little moments slowly so that it feels like a thriller, but then you want to have like character nuance, which feels like a drama. So that, that I think was the hardest, right? Because like, I kind of come from, from, you know, Blackfish was more thriller. Mm-hmm. Our friend was more drama. Like, but, you know, like I do love both. Um, but I really want, I, my favorite is a believable thriller, you know, where like the people inside it are like, you know, like, like they're real people. They say things that I would say, you know, um, in those situations. And they're not just kind of like caricatures. Yeah. So the- that I think was the tricky part with just, how much, how much of a drama, how much of a thriller? I think um, you found the perfect balance. Yeah. I mean, it really comes through. It is a drama. It is a thriller. And it is a potentially life-altering thriller. Right. You pull it right. off beautifully. And I think one of the great examples of the thriller and drama melded into one scene is that spacewalk by Commander Gordon. That is one of the most impressive sequences in the movie, Gabriella. Oh, thank you so much. How did you and your DP, Nick Matthews, how did the two of you pull that off? Because that, number one, it looks incredible. But number two, that one scene, that sequence, really blends drama and thriller perfectly. It's all-encompassing. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. That was, you know, it's, it's one of those, 
it's it's a big sequence, right? In a lot of ways, um, it's um, I loved talking to Nick about it um, and figuring it out. We we shot it first because it was like, okay, here's this big behemoth yeah. theme. Um, let's do it first so we can take the time to, to do it right. Um, you know, so we had a real space suit, um, which was on Chris, which is so incredibly hot and heavy, um, and, you know, built this stage with different parts of, of what an outside of a space station would be like, mm-hmm. um, and and had him really, you know, on tether, so you, you really get the zero gravity, you know, climb across it. And it's just, it's so heavy. It's so hard being in the tether at all. It's just ridiculously uncomfortable. <laughs> and so, like, so much leaned on him. Um, but he just, like, guns it, you know? Like, he just knows what to do for performance. I mean, he had that character so mapped out before the, our first day and so committed that um, it's just, it's such a pleasure to have an actor like that. Um, and so he went for it, and, and it took, um, I feel like, three days maybe. Um, and it was, you know, in mapping it out and, like, how, it wanted, how I wanted it to look, we had the real space station, right, like a model of the real space mm-hmm. station. I needed it to be, like, slow enough for it was to get the dialogue in, realistic enough um, for him to not technically maybe get fried, in real life by, or, you know, in, if, if, you know, a real NASA consultant saw this and, and saw how close he was to some of these, you know, um, like solar panels and things right. like that, that he might've fried, right. He might've died on the spot. So it's like, you're sort of like, you're sort of going back, batting, batting less than right. You're taking realism into account. You're taking, um, you know, Christmas Eve's comfort into account. Um, how realistic can this look? And like, can we have this human moment? All in all of it, you know, can Kira and Gordon connect during this? Um, and can she help calm him down? And so it was just sort of like, whoa, you know, like just like one step after another, you're just kind of building blocks. Um, and then, you know, ultimately it, it, it's performance. You know, I think like, yes, I want all the parts to be there. And I think they were, but it, ultimately it's like, it's it's Chris, you know? Yeah. And how he feels being out there and how he's you know, making us making us feel what we're supposed to feel there. So, um, you know, I found myself focusing on that quite a bit. And like, you know, if I stay with Chris, um, you know, a lot of the other stuff we can do again, we can, you know, but I if I if I really want this scene to be what I want it to be, it's it's gonna rely on the the nuance that he's giving well, and so um but yeah we had a few days and we we shot it first because it was so intimidating yeah if you didn't get that scene right the it, the rest of the movie would be i think more yeah cut and paste so to speak from an yeah. emotional standpoint because this right. is this scene is the linchpin this that's, is that's really exactly. what everything turns on a dime with this scene that's it, right and I love that Nick captures Chris's face. We see the panic. He's panicking, and we see it in his eyes through, yep. you know, the help, the face shield. Yep, yep, that's it. He's definitely, you know, um, being a human being. You know, he's a commander, but he's so human. 
um, confronted with what's happening in the world. He sees that, you know, and um, and that's just kind of like what the scene's based on, right? It's mm-hmm. just trying to calm down um, during the entire time um, and get this and get this, you know, you know, whatever, like just 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 fix something to be able to get back into the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you know, it's, it's, a uh, it's only, only Chris, I think could deliver it. Um, it was just, it was, oh, yeah, there was so much pressure on him. And I just still look back on it and think like, oh my gosh, I can't believe like there were moments where you just wanted to take him out of the suit and give him a breather, but he would just be like, no, 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 keep going, keep going. Like, I, I, yes, I'm dying in here. But like I've like I've got this. I know what I'm doing. So and dying in that suit is fueling the character and his performance. Yes. To take yes. him out and let him get air conditioned and comfortable. <laughs> right. Right. It could. It had it been comfortable. Totally different performance. Yeah. Totally different across across the board. But now you bring up something really important, talking about the tethering and the harnesses, because this is weightlessness. In the ISS. So obviously you've got six actors. Generally, there's probably two to four on screen at all times, yeah. or at least like for 80% of the film. You've got harnesses and tethers, which had to be just hell to get rid of in post-production. But what kind of challenges in an already claustrophobic space did this present for poor Nick to shoot this film? Oh my gosh. Nick was just, um, I cannot, it's just the collaboration was so magical um, to be able to work with someone like this. Um, He, so he and I shot listed every single second before we even set foot on stage. So for weeks, we would just sit there and just hammer out every single second and, um, and do it from early in the morning until late at night. And so we, we knew what we wanted to see. Yeah, I just sort of said, this is, this is what I want to see. And then, of course, you want enough of your close-ups. But I was just like, you know, I want this claustrophobic. I want the, the camera to, to do a 360. So we remember we're up, up, you know, up is not up and down is not down. And, and I want this creepiness and insidiousness. And so there was just so much stuff that we, we kind of shot listed. Um, and so we came in with a sort of a vision but then you have to you have to be on the balls of your feet, right? You have to stay agile because with this vision, it's great that we want to see all this on screen, the director and the DP. But guess what? <laughs> there's a lot that has to happen <laughs> to make that reality. So there's stunts. Um, there's you know you don't want to cross people, right? Because you don't want their tethers to get crossed. You also don't want their tethers to to um, to you know, be in their faces or cross their faces mm-hmm. because then you're painting it out in VFX and you you're painting out a face like and that's like takes a billion years and is really expensive. So there's that. Um, there is which pot are we in and like we better know that in the beginning because the the team is going to be the gaffers, the grips, everyone's going to be be like lighting and flying off the ceiling of that pod before we even set foot on stage. There's just like so much work um, goes into it. So Nick and I really had to have like, this is exactly what we want. If we can't have it, please tell us and we'll just move really quickly and think of some other way to do it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that was like almost just the physicality of all of it was really um, took a, took a lot of it took out a, a lot of the energy I think of like any given workday. Um, but then you know once you had it and once we knew what we were doing all the physical stuffs in place then you're like in with these characters it's all about the performance and you're just like I'm free to be a director you know what I mean it was like that was amazing but yeah Nick um, was tireless um, he's a genius and um, and great attitude and just solutions and everything so um, and a visionary so I'm I'm just so lucky to work with him now were you guys and that is part one of my exclusive interview with Gabriella Calperthwaite talking about ISS. As I said at the top of the show, we're going to come back to the last few minutes of the interview uh, after we speak with Joe Maggio, who is on the line. So welcome, Joe. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm in Park City, and I'm so happy to be here it is, on your show. It has been a long, long time since you and I spoke. Bitter, I was going to say, I remember it was 23 years. Bitter bitter Feast was the last time we spoke. Oh, that's right. Yes. I, I thought, because I, I was like, God, it seemed like it wasn't that long, but it was Bitter Feast and not, it wasn't Virgil Bliss, was it? Uh, no, we didn't talk, Vir- well, actually, Virgil Bliss, I think you and I spoke on the carpet at the Spirit Awards. Okay, all right, because that's what I mean, I, yeah. I, I seem to recall, I was like, but man, it doesn't seem that long. Yeah, we spoke yeah. on the carpet for the Spirit Awards, uh, but no, and we did a whole sit-down, Bitter Feast, out of LAFF in 2010. Yep, yep. And I love that film so much, I still love that film so much. It is so twisted. It's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, of course, it's so nice that you still got Larry in your corner here. Larry Fessenden is executive producer of Bliss. Um, correct, yeah. You can't, do, you can't do anything without Larry. Come on. Well, it's becoming more and more apparent to me. Yes. Uh, everything I do now, you know, somehow Larry is linked in. So he's a great a great person to have on your team so larry is just he's amazing and he fits in yeah. really well with your style of shooting this whole this incidental he, cinema idea of creative freedom because that's essentially what he does it re- it really is and and i think that's why we've you know we've why we've i i think sort of found each other and and why more and more you know as, as time goes on I think we really see that we are kindred spirits. I mean, you know, we, we differ, you know, Larry is much, is, you know, in his own work, you know, is really much more interested in, in, in horror. And, but, uh, you know, we, our approach to production, our approach to you know, maintaining a, a degree of creative freedom, um, you know, working maybe, in, you know, slightly smaller, more intimate um, um, settings, it really, and I think we both, I think we both really, I think we kind of get off on the idea of, of doing it, you know, without so much waste, without so much, mm-hmm. you know, all the trappings of, you know, the, the enormous crew and all the trucks and, and just in and telling, you know, making films in, 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 a, in a more efficient 
um, uh, way, I guess you could say. Economical efficiency. Yep. Economical yep. efficiency. But now... Yep. Small footprint. Very small. But yeah. with a big impact, though. Um, <laughs> I hope so. I got to tell you, I loved Virgil Bliss, you know, 20-some years yep. ago. Now, for you to bring us Bliss, which is part two of what will be a trilogy. It better be a trilogy the way you, you leave Bliss at the end. Um, <laughs> I'm just telling you, Joe. I'm just, I'm telling you. I better get that... Better get that third film. Uh, it's in the works. But it's just so wonderful. You know, everybody talks about Richard Linklater and Boyhood. Um, and, uh, of course, we've got uh, the Sunrise, Sunset, Midnight trilogy out there. Uh, but yeah. this, I, what I'm seeing between Virgil Bliss and Bliss, I love the growth of our title character, Virgil. Um, yeah. a.k.a. Dwayne. <laughs> Since this poor man, he's been on the run for 20 years, ha has, you know, a little nom de plume, a little a.k.a. alias going on there. Um, <laughs> but I love how he really has changed in the 20 years. Well, and I, I, I think so. And, and, and you know... Over the years, Clint Jordan, you know, who plays Virgil, mm -hmm. he he would come to me and say, you know, we should we really left Virgil in the lurch there. <laughs> you know, we should revisit that, and that would be a great what a great story to tell. Like, what happens to him? Where does he go after? You know, he leaves that apartment in 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 Brooklyn in mm -hmm. Williamsburg, um, and. I said, you know, I, I was always like, ah, I don't know, it didn't feel right. And then he, as the pandemic was beginning, I think it was 2020 or 2021, he brought it up again. And I don't know why, it just, it felt right. And when we started talking about it, I realized Clint, you know, Clint, as, as Clint Jordan, as the actor, he'd been through so much mm -hmm. over those 20 years, you know. And he brought, I think he brought all of that to... Um, to you know, to the role, and it, and, and, it, and it really works, and you really feel an organic evolution in, in the character. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you see it, you see the aging, but you also see where he actually looks to be in better shape now. Yes, isn't that funny? Than he was twenty <laughs> years ago. Um, no offense to Clint, but no, he looks to be in better physical shape, despite. Um, Dwayne slash Virgil's, you know, oxy dependency and yes. anything else he can get his hands on. Um, yeah. uh, and he can't make it through a day without constant, constant fixes. I want to know how much money he's getting paid as a stable hand and a maintenance guy to afford the amount of drugs he's taking. Um, well, it's. Yeah, we did. You know, we did. We did uh, quite a bit of research. I wrote the screenplay with Clint and with Farrell Amadeus, who plays the dual roles of, of Amy, Joe and and, Amy. Yeah, the sisters. Yeah, and we, you know, we found um, we found this, this. You know, well, one in particular, a great documentary called Oceana, and it's about 
um, or Oxion, it's called, but it's about a town in Appalachia, I believe, um, called Oceana, that was once this idyllic, you know, little, small, little intimate town where everyone looked out for each other, that is over overrun by just, you know, it's just overtaken by this oxy addiction. Wow. And we really learned a lot about the economy of that, of that addiction and how, you know, how it works, how much it costs. And, you know, and people do, they live just, you know, they just sort of live on the edge and everything they make spend on, you know, these, on these, on these pills. And, um, you know, they're just getting by. And, and, and I think that's what, that's, that's where Virgil is. You know, mm-hmm. he's not, he's still alive, but he's just sort of hanging on, riding out his well, and, and that's the feeling we wanted to give it. He's not saving up for anything. He's just there, and when he dies, he's done, and that's and that's going to be the end of it for him. And, and he found someone. Yes, he's in, in Amy. In Amy, who is, who is, so, you know, she's, a, a, she's a, worse. A like-minded, a fellow traveler. Um, but I think her drug addiction is even worse. Um, I think. so. But and I love the way you you introduce us to Amy and you set this up for where Virgil is now, and Amy is Amy is the big thing is she got a job she got a job it's like she's never had a job in her life you get this sense <laughs> and she brings balloons and everything she's celebrating because she got a job at Party City, but it's yeah. not just a job it's full time. <laughs> and these little details really inform us about the character and about their dynamic. The, this whole exchange with the pizza guy was hilarious. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. that was funny. <laughs> uh, you know what's funny is is in all the little test screenings we've done. You know, it's it's. It, you know, the, all those those moments that you've just described, to me, they're so funny. Yeah. And we never got any laughs, but in our pre, we, when we premiered at Slamdance, oh, the audience was howling. I was so happy, so gratifying. They, you know, they saw the humor. It's, it's Gallo's humor, to be sure. But, but, you know, people saw the humor and, you know, in Virgil thinking he's going to get this, the guy who's going to give him the pizza, you know, this sort of magical thinking. Yeah. Um, and Amy's whole idea about, I'm going to have a party. I got a job, a full-time job. Yeah. And it's a party yeah. city. So in other yeah. words, any money you were going to make, you've already started spending at Party City so you can give yourself a party. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my feeling with Amy is that, you know, she she wants to believe that, that this means something. Yeah. And she's trying to psych herself up and make something out of it. But she knows it's not going to last. And, you know, it, it, and, and, yeah. and I feel like, you know, sort of contrary to what you were saying, to me, this is her cycle. You know, she gets a job, loses it, they struggle a little bit, and then get, maybe she gets another job. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and this is the feeling I'm hoping people get is that this is, you know, this is, you know, probably not going to last. Oh, She's yeah. very excited about it. You know it's not going to last. <laughs> you know that. But then on the flip side, and this is a testament to Farrell, who plays Amy and who plays her sister, Joe, who is yeah. the very devout, uh, scripture-spouting 
Holy Roller's sister, Joe. Uh, As different as night and day, you made sure of that also in their look, since Farrell is playing both roles. Yeah. But watching her Farrell's performance with the two extremes, wow. Yeah, Yeah, that's all Farrell. She really, you know, I I had an idea of what I wanted. I wanted them to look similar, but feel like different aspects maybe of the same person and Farrell really you know she came up with the looks and and she changed her voice I mean it was really I I, I was really impressed she did she really worked at it and I think I think you know she she really accomplished something kind of special um, I'm curious did you did you know did you understand right away that that it was the same that it was the same actor or did or did you figure that out later I figured it out later because I didn't read anything about the film other than Joe has a film. I'm like, Annie, I got to talk to Joe. <laughs> that was it. Oh, that was it. She sent me a blast on Bliss. And I all I saw is it's your film. And I emailed her right away. I said, Annie, I got to talk to Joe. I want Joe on oh. the show. Um, so that was it. This is <laughs> This is what I do. It's like... <laughs> I go in blind. I like to go in blind when I watch yeah. a film, so I don't have a preconceived notion. And so it what? took it took me a little bit, and then I realized it's the same actress. Yeah. And that was only yeah, I... because of her facial, her bone structure. Mm-hmm. That was the tip-off for me. <laughs> but... I kind of, for me, it's, it, it, you know, Clint, I remember, was like, well, what do you think? I mean, what if people recognize it? I was like, I don't think it matters. To me, it works. Yeah. I like, I kind of like it. It, it. What I was thinking of is, is like the Bunuel, you know, film, that, that obscure object of desire, where he, he uses two different actors to play the same role. Mm-hmm. And... And I was kind of, it was kind of intriguing to me. I always wanted to do something like that. And I thought, well, you know what? If people pick up on the fact that it's the same actor, you know, maybe they'll they'll get it as a as a kind of a concept that you know that they're that that you know that that they're more really more two aspects of kind of the same person. And it would make sense that Virgil would sort of fall for the sister because she's almost like a. And I a cleaned up version. Maybe. Yeah, I, I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. And she has her own little, oh yeah, own little larcenous streak in her, shall we say? <laughs> um, so yeah. she's got a, she's got her own game plan, and it, yeah. you know something's got to be up when yeah. she appears. When Joe appears, you know something has to be up. Yeah, but you don't know what it is, and slowly. You start to find out. But the byproduct of this is the development of Virgil as a character yep. and his journey. Because he goes on the most incredible journey, which makes the title of the film Bliss. Really, it's a double entendre for what we see unfold. Yeah. Well, I think the journey is he 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 just he just he comes to want to live again. Do you know what I mean? Like he he it's through through all of his trials, and you know we're really we, we, I, what we, what I 
what, what I sort of realized when we were thinking about the characters in the story is I wanted to play with a lot of this, you know, the, the you know, Joe, the character, as you, as you mentioned, is, is very, you know, very hyper-religious, hyper-Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, and I love, I love, I wanted to take some of those themes and, um, of redemption and, you know, and not, not, it's not a religious film per se, but, but we do, we do play with a lot of. Oh, absolutely. And crucifixion and the agony in the garden and, and the tr- these trials and, and emerging somehow, you know, renewed or, or, um, cleansed and, and, and to make it visually, it's a small film, but it, to give it that epic quality, you know, um, um, so that in the end, when he finally is, you know, is is she sets him free, you know, from 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 bondage. He, so yes, you, you get the sense that something has something remarkable has happened. So, but it's watching her, Farrell's performance, um, as she's trying to coerce Virgil into giving yeah. her information. Um, it's watching this. It's yeah. You, you wonder how right then it's like, all right, how much of this Holy Roller thing is an act? Yeah. And you really start. So your perceptions are ch- constantly changing of her. Yeah. And, you're feeling it's like your heart's breaking for poor Virgil, who's <laughs> he's helpless. He's essentially yeah. going through withdrawals. Um, yeah. uh, it's heartbreaking, and I gotta say, Clint does an amazing job in those uh, scenes. Amazing job. Yeah, I mean we. It was, you know, it's it was it was almost like theater. I mean, we we were we were just in that one location for so much of the time. It was a very small crew. Um, we tried to shoot in sequence as much as possible to to sort of to to aid in that effect that you're talking to really so, to un, so that so that to help Clint yeah. really go through that evolution. Um, and you know, and he was really he was tied up. He was, you know, he really was. It was, I think, it was physically demanding. And um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I give it up to Farrell and Clint both. I mean, they really, um, they really went, they dove in at first, well, and um, they were so committed. And um, yeah, I think you know, I, I hope that you that the audience feels it and and you know the 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 that that was really that that sort of tactile you know right in your face quality i think that was part of why it felt like the story to tell because we were we were coming out of the pandemic everyone was wearing their masks and separated and isolated and we wanted to tell us really raw right in your face sweaty human story and and I, I, you know that's that's what we were going for so. and you know metaphorically with life um you're seeing joe and virgil both their masks come down by the end of the film yeah. and you yeah, leave both- you leave me hanging it's like <laughs> okay and you go to you go to black and credits and i'm like joe i'm gonna kill you where, where I want more. I need it now. Um, there will be more. What? I, 
you tortured me with that ending. Because the way you end it, it was their masks have come down. Yeah. Just like the masks of the world may have come down from the pandemic. Um, yeah. So that's fascinating. But then it's like, oh, my God, no. So now I have to wait until you get the next film done. Uh, it's torture. You're torturing me. Well, I have to be honest. You know, as I think I mentioned already, you know, I, in, in all honesty, I, I did not intend for this to be a trilogy when we made Virgil Bliss. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and therefore it's, you know, 23 years later, we, 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 we I just, you know, decided, okay, let's, let's see what, what Virgil's up to. But as soon as we started talking and, and, you know, and getting into the story and, and, and you know, what, understanding what was going to happen, I knew that it was going to have to be then a trilogy because I was not going to be going to be able to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish in just the one film. I wanted to get him back home to where it all began all those years ago, the first crime that sent him to prison and was that he, where he was getting out of prison at the beginning of Virgil Bliss. You know, he goes back to the original sin and now that's where we're going to pick it up in the third one is, is you know he's got to know he's achieved his his own redemption i think he's redeemed himself but now he's got to deal with the vengeance the desire for vengeance of the family that were affected by his that first crime and and um yeah and that's 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 where it's at i think it's going to have a different feel i think it's going to be a bit more like a bit more sam peckinpah Oh, okay. Samurai movie, but, uh, you know, um, but uh, that's all I can say. But I'm I'm not going to have to wait another 23 years for it. No. Okay. No, absolutely not. All right. (laughs) You know, as long, okay. Whew. All right. Take care. (laughs) Now, you mentioned something. I don't think I'll be here in 23 years. (laughs) I don't think I will either. Um, (laughs) But you mentioned something really important about that the quote-unquote bondage sequencing uh, where poor Clint is actually tied up. And I have to commend you and your cinematographer, Harlan, um, who also shot Virgil Bliss for you. Harlan, you've got, you know, there's no question. Clint is actually tied up because he gives us a great close-up of his right hand. And you can see the rope. And it's red under there. That was tight. That was not make-believe. That was legitimate. Well, yeah. Well, we, you know, when that, it came time to, to do that, we, were, we, we went to YouTube. <laughs> and, and, you know, there were, there were, there were all these YouTube videos about how, how, do you, how would you bind, how would you tie someone up, bind them in a bed? And... Um, so we had a lot to choose from, but then, you know, there's a difference between doing it in real life and, um, and then making it look real and Mm -hmm. believable on film. And we had to make it tighter than it you normally would. Like Clint could not, there was no way he could get out. And I thought we would show, we needed to show that once in that sort of first wide shot where he is thrashing. And Clint's a big, strong guy. Mm-hmm. Still, you know, I mean, he's much older than, than in Virgil was, but he, he's still pretty fit. And 
was thrashing about pretty good, and there was no way he was getting he was going to get get out of those 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 bonds. Yeah, so, and that's why that yeah. one close up to that yeah. right hand to the wrist. Yeah, that was so important to inform the audience. Yeah, and then at the end when she finally is releasing him, you see on his right ankle it really dug in. It was a, there's a big red welt there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who who did yeah, the knot I mean, tying? He went for it. <laughs> um, who did the knot tying? Um, I believe, you know, it was, people wore many hats. Um, we had, I feel like it was one of our grips, our key grip, Julia Kerr, who also Doug, with, along with Victoria Jameson, the gaffer, Doug the Grave, actually did all the digging involved with that, um, that, that, that worked on the knots, yeah. But we, you know, we, um, like I said, though, we did, we did a fair amount of research and figured out, you know, what would be the most believable. Oh, my God. Oh, my so. God, Joe. Now, you know, <laughs> is, talk to me about working with your editor, Seth Anderson, in this, because you do build tension here. And you create a lot of ambiguity, um, yeah. and there's a lot of secrecy with breadcrumbs yeah. that slowly get dropped for us. Yeah. How challenging yeah. was the editing process here? You know, I'm so, I'm so glad you bring that up because it really, it was probably, I think, the longest and most involved edit of any film that you know, we've ever made. And Seth has edited all my, well, Seth did not edit Virgil Bliss, but Mm -hmm. from starting with Milk and Honey, he's edited all of my films. Yeah. And, you know, Seth gets gets very involved. He's very much a co-creator. I, you know, I, I, I never, whenever, you know, he's, he's here with us in Park City. I never say this is my editor. You know, I mean, he's, he's, he's an, you know, integral part of the, of, you know, sort of, shaping and, and discovering at times the story and but we kept going we thought we were done and then we'd go back and we thought we were done and then we'd go back right up until very late not long ago we we decided that you know this we had this idea of where the midpoint should be and it was about seven minutes too late and so we went in and we cut out seven minutes from the first you know, half of the film. So, and it was all about what you're saying. It was trying to maintain that slow burn tension. But, you know, so, so that the audience is, is always thinking, okay, well, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen yeah. next? Not giving away too much, you know, um, not letting them get out ahead of us so that they could see what was coming down the pipeline, you know? So, and it was very, it was hard to achieve because some the first few cuts, the feedback we were getting was it's too slow. It's taking it's taking too long to get where you know where we want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, to me, it was very important that it was a sort of a slow build up, and so finding that just that just the right pacing and, and ma- you know and so that we know enough, we understand what's going on, and we but we don't know what's going to happen next. And it, it took a long time. So we we it was several several. Um, um, trips back to the drawing board, so to speak. And, um, but I, you know, I'm hoping that, that we've, 
that it's, it feels right, you know, now. Um, and I think so, I think your build, I think the build is just spot on, Joe. Um, oh, thank you. You know, building, you know, because, you know, we see Amy's a mess. Clint is a mess. Uh, you know, how quickly can they each get their next fix? Um, and then things you you really you we have you give us that that's a little more rapidity than the rest of the film. Your pace yeah. is a little quicker, and it kind of coincides with the whole drug concept, things like that. But then, when something massive happens, and then Joe shows up as a surprise, sitting in. Virgil's living room. Um, <laughs> you know, do people just leave their doors open? I, I, I got to tell you, that's just mind blowing. Yeah. But <laughs> once that happens, that's when the breadcrumbs start. That's yeah. when, and it's incremental and it's slow and it builds. So, yeah, and even that, you know. Uh, it, it, there, there, in order for that to be to work, to feel believable, and to have to take the audience with us, as you say, we had to leave a couple breadcrumbs that maybe seemed like they were, you know, maybe little throwaway moments or bits of mm-hmm. color, or, you know, and and you know, but but that call that she gets when when Virgil's arguing with the pizza guy, you know, that might that it, uh, at first, it might just seem like a, you know another layer of the chaos of their life. You know, no, the, no, no, that's important. Yeah. But in fact, it's, it's it's critical, and you and you realize that that is the sister calling. You know, and um, uh, and, and even the, you know the celebration around you know the job. Uh, you know, I I wanted I wanted to create this tension of. You know, okay, all right, this is, so what is this? This is a story about maybe some people who are about to turn their life around and then pull the rug out from underneath the audience. But but it, it can't feel like it's coming from left field. So, right. you know, and, and there were all, there was all sorts of scenes that we cut and then we added back and then we took a little bit more. You know, it was really, um, it took a long time <laughs> to get to get it to, so that, it, you know, it felt just right. So. Well, and then, of course, you bring in, your score, I love. Oh, I love your score. Sam Bisbee's score is so well yeah. suited to this film, and it's so understated. So yeah. understated. Yeah, I I sent Sam Sam Bisbee is. I know Sam as a musician. Sam, I would go see Sam play in New York. You know, and all throughout the year. You know, early two thousands and. The late '90s, um, and and Sam is actually—I don't know if you know this—but Sam is actually a, a pretty big producer now as well. He's got two films at Sundance um, this year, and um, but I, to me, he's—he will always be just a musician that I love, and and he's done the music for this is the third film that he's worked mm-hmm. on, and I sent him um, a rough cut, and. Maybe 20 minutes after I sent it to him, he he texted me and said, I, I absolutely want to do this. And I was like, but you haven't even watched it. There's no way you watched it. He said, I, I've watched 20 minutes, and I know I, I, I want to do this. 
and oh um, and he just works. I love the way he works. He's so smart. He's so sensitive. He's a great storyteller, and so he he brings his own perspective to what's happening. And we talk a little bit about the vibe, what we want to go for. I had temp music in there, and he takes that as a cue of sort of the sound that we're going for. And then it's all him, and I love the score. I it's one of my favorite when the music comes in whenever I'm watching it. I just it it feels it just feels perfect. It's, and some um, something that the score also does is because Virgil himself is emotionally understated. He's very introverted in this film. Yeah. Um, he isn't very demonstrative. He keeps everything inside. And, of yep. course, that's going to come with being on the run and hiding for 20 years. Yep. And the score very much is the same way. It doesn't, you know, explode on you and tell you this is how you're supposed to feel or lead you along a beaten path or a not beaten path. Um, yeah. The score really follows Virgil. I think you're right. It's very spare. It's very understated. Um, it's it's like if you imagine the score in in, in maybe in, in human form, and, and it's 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 a strong silent type, I guess you could say. Yeah. Like like Virgil, um, but at the end, it does. I love you know when when he's finally you know freed from 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 you know the bed and. Uh, you know, that, and then goes out and, and, and rigs up the hose, and um, you know, we he gets it gets much much bigger. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, and that's Sam again. You know, I, I'm not sitting there with him when he's doing. He 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 just works alone, and you know, sends music. We cut it in, and and there's very, usually not too much, you know, feedback from me. It's it's. It's, mm -hmm. um, you know, he's really got, just got a great, as I said, I think it's his own storytelling instincts are, are strong and he, and he's not showy. He's not showy as a, as a person. And, and, um, you know, we, he's here now at, at our premiere, you know, we, he came up and, and people were curious to talk to him and he, you know, he kept referring back to, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's that kind of guy. And I think it's reflected in, in the. Um, in, in, in the score. Well, you know, you brought up a great scene, the shower scene, and where Virgil hooks up a hose outside. That is so beautifully shot. Harlan captures yeah. the sun through the water coming down from the hose. Very, yeah. very much like a baptismal, a cleansing yeah. of the soul. Absolutely stunning. Just yeah. stunning. I mean, really yeah, we, beautiful scene. We, um, you know, the, the 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 hose idea was something I came up with just growing up. Um, you know, we we uh, our neighbors were, um, you know, big athletes, and 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 you know, it was it was a house full. It was like eight kids, I think, and um, and I think I don't know if their shower would there'd be a line for the shower, but, you know, they'd come home from practice and, and rig a hose up to the gutter. And I just, it always stuck with me. And so I said, you know, let's do that, you know, and, and the shower actually in the house where, where, you know, where um, Virgil and, and Amy and then Joe um, 
are living uh, was pretty anemic, pretty, <laughs> you know, like dribbling on. I was like, yeah, let's do that. Then we can have this moment outside. And then it, Harlan found that shot. Um, and said, this is where we got to do it. And, and he came around, he said, the sun comes down, it's gonna, this is what it's going to look like. And, and, he, and, he, and we had like maybe five minutes to get that before the sun disappeared. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was a little bit, it was a little hairy, but oh my God. we did it in one take and, um, and it just looked, it looked great. When we came back inside, everyone had been watching on the monitor and was like, wow. That was amazing. Yeah, it's, it is so the I most. Knew that was a special shot. So. It's the most beautiful scene in the film. It truly is. Yeah, that's your money shot. That's the most beautiful scene in the film. Um, just absolute, and that is a huge turning point for yeah. Virgil. <laughs> now I've got one last question for you, <laughs> Mister Maggio. You had your world premiere this weekend. How well received was it? And the encore showing is when? The encore is happening on Thursday, the 25th of January at 12 p.m. at the Yarrow in Park City. That's now the Doubletree Hotel. But, you know, people who know the part, you know, Slam Dance and Sundance, the Yarrow is... is uh, is where Slamdance began, and then Sundance took it over, and, and now Slamdance has moved back in. But that'll be Thursday, the 25th at 12 p.m. Um, we got the, the the audience really seemed. Here's how I gauge it: it's you know the engagement, the laughs. We got so many great laughs, gasps, and everyone stayed for the Q and A, which is unusual. So, um, so that so I think I think it was. I think it's a crowd pleaser. If I can go out on a limb and, and, and say it, um, so uh, yeah. If anyone in in Park City area, please come. On, on uh, I think there are still tickets available. So was the premiere a sellout crowd? Uh, pretty much. Yeah. You know, it's it's weird. It's like people people come and they go. They have to run out to do something like a panel yep. or something. And they come back, but. Um, it was great. It was a great crowd. Um, I love being at the Yarrow because it's so self-contained. All the filming, everyone is there. Um, the panels are all there, you know, um, and um, discuss, you know, little discussions, fireside chat type things. And then they've got the two main screening rooms. And it, it's a real, it feels, it just feels so great coming from, and this is not to take anything away from Sundance, which is so Big, it has to have it has to be broken up and spread out in yeah. different venues but it's just it's so nice when you get to the yarrow and everything is there so um and slam dance always has a much more down earth you know sort of homey um kind of vibe and that's and what it's known for yeah. yeah it tr- slam dance truly celebrates the independent film the independent yeah. spirit the incidental cinema type yes. of filmmaking. Thank you. Thank you for the shout out for incidental cinema. So, Joe, this has been so fabulous getting to catch up with you again after you so many years. Um, hopefully, yeah. it's not going to be that long till the next time. It won't. Two years tops, I promise. Oh, my God. I got to wait two years to see what <laughs> happens next. 
Oh, God, you're going to kill me. You're killing me here. Oh, well. I'll give you a sneak preview. Okay, I'll take it. Joe, right. thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And thank, thank you, you for making part two of the Virgil Bliss trilogy. And I will wait with bated breath for part three. All right. I can't wait to talk again. Oh, Joe, thank you. And you have a great encore screening on Thursday. Thank you. We will. Thanks, Joe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was writer-director Joe Maggio talking about Bliss, number the second film in the Virgil Bliss trilogy. And if you're in Park City at Slamdance, head over to the Yarrow on Thursday for the 12 o'clock Mountain Time screening of Bliss. You will not be disappointed. And now, we are going to backtrack and go back for the last eight minutes of my exclusive interview with Gabriella Cowperthwaite talking about the uh, about ISS. We cut off after she was talking about, we were talking about uh, the process, uh, the cinematography and shooting and the use of harnesses and tethers and how that impacted where uh, Nick was able to shoot uh, and the challenges presented with that. So Gabrielle and I continued on talking a little bit about the camera movements, the uh, the camera shot, and then got into some research and a few little tidbits that are very poignant in the film. So take a listen to the rest of my interview with Gabriella Cowperthwaite talking ISS. With shoulder rigs handheld for good, because it feels like, like there was great stability in the lensing. We didn't have any shaky cam, but because of the very nature of the shooting and the, the size uh, of our our stage within the ISS. Were you doing handhelds and shoulder rigs? We did a little bit. We did a little bit of loose, not really, um, not shaky handheld, like um, we did just, you know, rigs and backpack rigs and things like that sometimes for just a looseness to especially some of the close-ups yeah. and that stuff. I didn't want, like, a total stiffness. I still wanted it to feel human. Um, and I didn't want, um, and you know, they're moving anyway, right? And so with us moving a little bit too, it gives even more of a sense of zero gravity. Mm -hmm. Um, we were, we were never really fixed, um, for any long periods of time, but there was like dollies, you know, Mm -hmm. dolly shots and things like that. So we were, there was a soft movement is what I would call it, um, throughout the, throughout the 90 minutes and, you know, enough to make it feel human, but not too much to make you feel even sicker than you might already feel <laughs> being in this like claustrophobic situation. Yeah. If you had movement going against movement, I could see people who suffer from motion sickness watching this film, not being too happy. Yeah. On a bigger screen or something, you're like, Oh, it's nice. It made people sick. Now, did you, consult with NASA at all? What kind of research went into this? Because of the technical aspect of this and the fact that this is a very viable possibility of something that could happen in, at the ISS. Um, totally. I went in knowing nothing, 
about the ISS and so just delved vertically into like everything I could learn. So I read Endurance by Scott Kelly, mm-hmm. um, read another book, read, read a couple other books, but that was the one that really got me excited and I put a bunch of scenes just directly from Scott Kelly's book into like the space station. I like put the mice in. There was originally Nick's, Nick's uh, script had like a microscope and they're looking at something under a microscope and I was like, can we do mice? Um, because of Scott Kelly. Um, I put in the, well, gosh, what was it? The, um, the vodka scene because I love how the only way to drink when you open something up and it starts going, you know, pouring, it wants to start pouring in zero gravity. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of capture it with centrifugal force to kind of hold it down so you turn around um, to be able to drink it. So I put that in there. I put Winds of Change, the Scorpion song in there based on a podcast I heard about the CIA actually writing that song to bring the Berlin Wall down. I mean, all this stuff was like, I'm just packing this stuff in there because I was so excited by the research um, that I had done. Also, there was Garrett, a, a man named Garrett Reisman, who's a NASA consultant. Mm-hmm. So he was just the sort of, the sort of Bible, you know, the sort of like, keep me, keep me just, just enough, you know, in, inside the, within the guardrails to make this feel not too obnoxious for, you know, space geeks, but like, but, you know, I, of course, we'll need to play with, uh, play a little bit. And he's a big believer in like, just, just, just play. I get it. You know, like he does for all mankind, that Netflix show. Yes. Netflix. He does that show. So he's sort of like, you know, look, I know that, you know, you have to, you have to play a little bit. So, um, but he was someone I could just like call and be like, okay, what do you think about, would an astronaut say this? What would they say if this happened? You know, um, and he was just amazing. So I, I used him through the entire thing, in, even in edit and VFX. I was still still hitting him up for information. Just an amazing job, Gabrielle. And I have to say, I love the mice, and I love the fact that we have four mice. Yeah, I know. It's very metaphoric when you watch the whole film. Right. And. You see what's happening and what's on as it's unfolding. Yeah. And we've got four mice. I know. Um, I know. So I mean, I love li- I love little things like that. That mo- most people aren't gonna. They're say, oh, they're mice. They're holding on to the little mesh on the side, holding on for dear life. Yeah. Which is essentially what our astronauts and cosmonauts are doing. That's exactly it. You just, you hit upon what I felt was the most important metaphor when it just hit me out. All of a sudden I was like, aha, you know, what is it, what it's like to be untethered, right? Is That's what zero gravity is. That's what being up there is. But really when you have nobody to hold on to, you know, what that's like. I put the bungee cord sleeping sequence in there mm-hmm. where, where, you know, Nika comes to help her um, sleep because it just, you, you want to feel held, right? Like you want to feel a hug, you want to feel connected and, and grounded, and that's something that, you know, that physically doesn't happen up there, you know. So you're just looking for connection, and and watching the the mice lose that, and be and be untethered, was exactly like that. To me, that's the more the most foreboding scene, you know. It's all foreshadowing right there, you know. Oh. I've just got one last thing for you, for you, Gabriella. This is a film so much about humanity 
within individuals as well as a situational character study. What is the most gratifying aspect of making this film for you? Um, I guess, I guess thematically, maybe, um, describing what it's like to know who you are, know you're good, you're a good person, you care about people, um, you want what's best for everybody around you, um, and to be confronted with you know, a directive where you're asked to do something, to do the unthinkable. And um, what that makes you, can, can you maintain your humanity, you know, in these situations? Can you walk in somebody's shoes? Um, you know, can you, can you like yourself at the end of the day? And, you know, can you not lose who you are? And like, I think that's consistently asked of us. And I think that's what war asks of us. <laughs> You know, the dark side, and I think that's what's happening all over the world, and I think yeah. it's just a question, you know, and so I think that, in a way, that was that was an important question, I think, that I thought was cool to be able to ask, to be able to ask within the, con within the construct of this cool script, you know, and a badass mm -hmm. script that I can't believe I got the opportunity to direct. I personally think you were the perfect person to direct this, Gabriella, given your documentary and your narrative background. And the way that you are able to touch on humanity, I think you were the perfect person for this one. And you have done one hell of a job. Thank you so much, Debbie. You uh, made my day. <laughs> and I, I will be watching this film multiple times again. Oh, fantastic. It's well, one. thank you so much. Thank you. And I can't wait to see what you bring me next. Okay. You'll be the first to know. Well, good. I hope so. Thank you so much, Gabriella. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that was the conclusion of my exclusive interview with Gabriella Calperthwaite talking about ISS. It is out now. It is in theaters. Go see it. It really is an amazing film. Uh, from the production design, Jeff Wallace's production design, creating the ISS, to some incredible uh, lensing cinematography by Nick Remy Matthews, just and wonderful performances from all six of our ensemble. Just outstanding. And it poses a lot of thought-provoking questions. So, that is all the time we have today. Of course, we ran late. Uh, next week, we're going to be taking a look at and talking about the monster inside. And you all know how much I like horror stuff. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Behind the Lens.